0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Ronnie Green. Green is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author whose book, Shots on the Bridge, Police Violence and Cover-Up in the Wake of Katrina, His book tracks a post-Katrina incident in New Orleans where a family seeking help and trekking across a bridge is repeatedly shot by members of the New Orleans Police Department. And the story follows the efforts both by the police to cover up the truth and then the authorities to uncover the conspiracy. Welcome to the show, Ronnie.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So how did you get into writing this story?
1: You know, it, it really struck me one day. I was in my newsroom in Washington, D.C. in uh, 2011, and I was thinking I would really love to find a book, When one day I just happened to read an Associated Press wire story about the sentencing of officers and the police shooting of, of innocent victims in New Orleans right after Katrina. And just reading this AP story, a very thorough AP story, it just stopped me in my tracks. And it just hit me right away that I wanted to see about exploring this as a book. What really hit me about that that first story that I read was had a little bit of information on the victims and the families who were on the bridge and information on, on the officers who fired upon them and then were convicted in federal court. And I just had this thought of sort of stopping time, stepping back and trying to figure out how did everyone get to that small bridge this Sunday morning after Katrina? How did the residents get there why were they still in town how did the police get there what was going on and that sort of seemingly simple question led me on a you know a several year quest to research the events that happened that morning and bring them to light in the book
0: and and so for for those who aren't uh, familiar can you kind of describe what actually happened there
1: I sure can so this was Sunday September 4th 2005 which was the first Sunday after Katrina, less than a week after Katrina devastated New Orleans. And it was a time of utter chaos, utter panic for everyone still in New Orleans, whether you were a citizen who stayed back because you had no choice to leave, or the police officers who stayed back to serve. Everyone was really in survival mode. And a couple of days earlier, well, a city police officer had stopped some looters at a, at a local convenience store, One of the looters shot him in the head. So the police officers who were still there were already on, way on, beyond high alert. They were on edge. They were beyond edge. So this Sunday morning, it was actually a nice Sunday morning. The sun rose out early. Um, The police hear a call from their makeshift police headquarters, which is a banquet hall. And it's a 108, which means officer under fire. So there's a lot of confusion right away. Those officers were communicating through handheld radios. When they heard the 108 call, what the, the caller calling in meant that officer under distress, some of the officers who were at this banquet hall thought an officer was being shot again. That didn't happen, but they didn't know. So a pile of officers pile in to a budget rental van. That's how they got around the flooded streets. And they careened off 3.3 miles from their headquarters to the spot of where they thought this thing was occurring. What they didn't know was that there were two groups of families who happened to be walking over this bridge, Danziger Bridge, that same morning, had nothing whatsoever to do with the earlier call that sent police racing to the bridge. These were two families who had stayed back out of necessity with Katrina coming. Both were sent to their roofs when their houses flooded. Both were just trying to survive. One group was the Madison brothers, um, Lance Madison, a one-time NFL football player who stayed back to watch over his younger brother, Ronald. Ronald was 40, a very gentle soul who had the mind development of a child and just would would not leave New Orleans, wouldn't leave his dogs behind. So Lance stayed back to watch over him. This morning, Lance and Ronald had tried to walk to the family's home to get on bikes and pedal away. They couldn't get there, so they were walking back over the bridge. At the same time, there was a second family, the Bartholomew family, who had been living in these really cramped, run-down, sodden in hotel rooms after their house had been flooded, their apartment had been flooded. They were walking over the bridge to a grocery store to get medicine for a sick grandmother, and there were six people in that group. They had two groups of families, two good families, who were just trying to survive, who were just walking over the bridge that very moment. At the very moment, police raced out to what they thought was a shooting. And what happened was, this is where the tragedy begins. The police officer driving the rental van, he saw these groups of people, didn't see any guns, but he heard static over the radio that he thought these must have been people linked to the earlier call. So before the budget rental truck even came to a stop, he fired what he described as warning shots out the window. And these two groups of families had no idea why people were firing at them. They started scattering. So the officers, two officers up front, about nine in the back, filled out of the van and just started firing and firing and firing and firing. They asked no questions. They didn't search anyone. They just fired. And by the time they were done, they had killed two people. They killed a 17-year-old teenager, James B. J. Brissett, who was friends with one of Susan Bartholomew's nephews and was with them trying to survive the hurricane. On the other end of the bridge, they killed Ronald Madison, the gentle 40-year-old. And they named four others, Susan Bartholomew, who wouldn't leave New Orleans because the family had just one van and 10 or 11 people needed to get out. So she said, "We'll all stay back. Her arm was blown off. Her daughter was shot and needed life-saving surgery. Her nephew, Jose Holmes, uh, needed life-saving surgery. And to compound this unspeakable tragedy, police concocted a cover-up immediately and they soon arrested Lance Madison for the trumped-up charge of attempt of shooting at police. Lance didn't have a gun. Lance was trying to save his brother. Police later planted a gun and lied and said that Lance was armed that day. So it was really two waves of tragedy. One was the police shooting, and then the second wave was the cover-up.
0: And this is kind of a classic uh, shoot first, ask questions later uh, type of incident where, where they just made an assumption, uh, took their shots, and, and, and didn't bother to figure out what was going on before uh, using lethal force.
1: Oh, that's absolutely the case. You know, the officers who went out that morning, they, I do they do think, they did think, I should say, that a fellow officer was once again under fire. And actually, that really wasn't the case. They didn't know that. So they did head out, and a lot of them headed out filled with fear, and they were filled with rage. They were thinking, you know, we're we're still surviving the storm. We're trying to protect citizens. Why are they shooting at us again? They were filled with rage, and so there was definitely a lot of fear in that in that budget rental van. But that does not allow you as an officer to shoot first and to ask questions. And frankly, they didn't even ask questions. So it really was. Um, really a a, a tragic misfiring from the start, which as I noted was deeply confounded by the cover-up that began really instantly.
0: What was it like trying to cover uh, a story this horrific? I mean, just the mental process of uh, weighing through all this stuff.
1: That's a really good question. Um, I felt that I owed it to the families to tell this story as 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 truthfully as I could, of course, in any case, but I really, really felt that because of what those two families went through, and that meant recreating what happened that morning and recreating the cover-up, and there were some very dark events. The shooting was very dark. What happened to these families was very dark. Just moments that really made me stop and catch my breath. I mean, just a couple of small examples. Um, When there was the shooting on the bridge, and Susan Bartholomew, who was the the matriarch of one of the families, her arm was literally shot up, and had to be amputated. Her 17-year-old daughter, who was already pierced by gunfire, at one point lay on top of her mother to protect her from more gunfire. I mean, that just took my breath. And then there was um, their youngest son with them that day was a 14-year-old, really at that point, very thin teenage boy, who ran from the shooting and survived only because an officer missed his back. He fired twice at his back as he was running away. And that young uh, little Leonard Bartholomew actually stayed with family for a while. And then there's this tragic scene where when he finally gets back to New Orleans and he goes to the hospital, he sees his mom in her bed with her arm amputated. He sees his sister, Alicia, who had been saved by life-saging surgery. And his really, really close friend, Jose Holmes, who was literally within a breath of death in a hospital but unable to speak. And this teenage boy Starts crying and says, Why wasn't I shot too? He felt this guilt that was just really painful and spoke to uh, the tragedy of that morning. So, in recreating these events, there were dark moments and it was, um, it offered challenges in trying to do that. But I always tried to remind myself that, you know, write the tr- story as truthfully as possible. The victims and readers, of course, also uh, warrant the work that.
0: At what point? did you realize how bad this was? I know you mentioned that you had read the AP story, but I imagine reading the AP story, I've read a lot of them, even good ones, uh, doesn't really give you the sense for just how tragic this actually was.
1: No, I totally, totally agree with you. I mean, obviously that first story, you know, caught my attention and, and it gave readers a good sense of what happened, but I was not aware of the, really the waves of tragedies that occurred. Um, Not only that morning, but later on, you know, my first question to myself was, why were these families here? I lived for many years in South Florida, survived many hurricanes. It's not a fun process. And Katrina, of course, was the most devastating in in modern times, even more so than Andrew, which I lived through. Um, So my first question was, why were these two families there? And when I peeled back the layers, I found that they were still in town for such human reasons. You know, Ronald... 40-year-old with the mental development of a six-year-old, he just would not leave his two dogs. They were like siblings to him. And so the, the rest of the family left, but Lance, his older brother, his protector, this very stoic, proud man, stayed back to watch over him. So I thought, well, that's a very human reason why the Madison brothers didn't leave. And then the Bartholomew family and their extended relatives and friends, they wouldn't leave because Susan Bartholomew made a practical decision. We all can't leave, but we'll all stay. So I thought, okay, these are some very human reasons. And also I found some of the officers, you know, stayed back. One of the officers ended up getting the longest prison sentence for the shootings on the bridge. Um, His fiancee was due to give birth in in about a week, but he stayed back. So I looked at the human reasons. But then when I started looking into the horrors of the shooting, I was, you know, anyone would be taken aback. But what really, I think, was the most striking to me was the extent and the brazenness of the cover-up. You know, a lot of people, including officers serving at that time, said, some of them even said this in court, that could have been me. In other words, thinking that another officer was under fire, driving to the bridge, that could have been me. We could have, you know, we could have carried that same chair with us. But what no one could explain, and I don't think anyone can explain, is the cover-up. the officers and the supervisors right away set in motion to cover up. They planted a gun um, and set it with Lance Madison. They lied. They wrote reports that were just complete and utter fiction. There was one moment where one of the investigators yelled out, give me a name to one of his colleagues writing one of the reports. He just said, give me a name. And his colleague just said, Lakeisha. First name came to his mind. So suddenly in the official police report about what happened that morning, the name Leticia Smith was listed as an eyewitness who saw the Madison Brothers with guns. And police said, well, she was unreachable because of the hurricane. And I think they thought their story would hold because it would wash away as one of many hurricane horrors. So really the tragedies were, were, were as I mentioned, were sort of waves of tragedies, the horror of what happened to these families on the bridge. And then the really the indignity of the cover-up, alleging that, Lance Madison was a criminal, he served 25 days behind bars. They also wanted to charge Jose Holmes, Susan's nephew. They also alleged he had fired, he was on his deathbed, they could never get around to arresting him because the medical crews were trying to save him. So yeah, I mean, I was surprised by the depth of the tragedies, plural.
0: And let's talk about the cover-up because the cover-up's really uh, amazing. And actually, you know, one of the interesting things, you just mentioned it, so I'll start there, the 25 days in jail, I mean, he's actually lucky he wasn't wrongfully convicted. Uh, That was a a, a pretty fortunate break for him.
1: Well, that's a really great point. And that goes back to one of the themes I, I saw from researching these events, and that is the importance of the family. You know, the Madison family was a, was a very, very, very proud family. You know, that the family has experienced a lot of tragedy. Ronald was born with a, with a mental health uh, uh, learning disability that, that made him a sort of a child at age 40. He had another brother who had the same was in the same situation, and a couple of children in the family had lost their lives early. It's a very proud family. The oldest brother was at one point the president of the National Dental Association, other siblings in this family, got graduate degrees, were in the field of medicine, um, and so they pushed and pushed and pushed for the answers, and, and, it's, and it's great that they were able to do that. The other families did as well. James Percet's mom, Cheryl Johnson did, and so did the Bartholomew family. Were it not for the families pushing, the truth may have never come out. I mean, that's a really good point. And they pushed and pushed and pushed, and there's a quick sidebar. You know, it was about a year after these events that all the families filed a number of lawsuits that, for the first time, they sued the police department, the police chief, the mayor, and others. These were the first time that someone said, hey, what the police said wasn't true, and you know, it not not for the families pushing. I don't know the truth would have ever come out. So you're right. Lance spent 25 days behind bars after his brother, who he looked after, you know, like he was his own child, was killed. And you can never, ever take that experience away from him. But he could have been in longer were it not for the pushing of the family. There's no question.
0: And how was he able to get out that quickly, though?
1: It's interesting. The family, as I mentioned, very proud New Orleans family. One of the sisters at one point was married to a police officer. You know, they worked out at the same gym, gym as the police chief. Um, Ramel, the oldest brother, who was a dentist, he treated police officers in a dental practice, including one of the officers who was in, in the closet run car and fired that day. But the family was so taken aback. And the family got word that Ronald was dead and Lance was arrested. They knew instantly it was a lie. Because this was not something either one of the, their brothers would do. There's just not even a question. I mean, Ronald was afraid to watch a scary movie. They just knew this was a lie. And one of their first decisions was, we're not going to hire any attorney from New Orleans. They didn't trust the system. And that scene would carry on, which I'll mention in a second they hired um, an aggressive attorney in Baton Rouge, um, upstate a little bit. And that attorney and his colleagues, two attorneys, really just started digging into the facts. And they ultimately within a day or two found out where Lance was. And they got a hearing before a judge and they made the decision to put Lance on the stand during this preliminary hearing, which typically you wouldn't do. But Lance told his story and the judge right there, the magistrate judge says, I don't think you were one of the shooters. You know, if, if I did, I would set your bond at two million dollars or something like that. He said, but instead he cut it in half, and Lance was able to be released from um, jail. Though he the charges weren't immediately dropped, obviously that took a while, but the family was able to build a case and make the missing enough case. And Lance got going kind of the stand and told the truth. But by that point, the family's lawyers were already finding some questionable actions by the police one of the initial reports listing what happened was written in two different handwritings, and they presented this. So they were not able to expose a cover-up just yet, but they were able to early on raise enough questions that the magistrate judge at that point released um, Lance on a bomb and he was able to get out after 25 days.
0: Which I'm sorry. I find that incredible because I've, I've read a lot of these cases and usually these judges, uh, especially in the deep South are horrible and, and, and they, uh side with the police i mean this 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 is like a one in a million shot almost
1: that's a really good point you're right a lot of judges do decide with the police and don't want to hear your story but this judge was clearly listening he was clearly listening to lance that day and you know he still set a relatively high bond i mean it wasn't a neat bond but he lowered it half of what the prosecutor was seeking and as he said during court he said if i thought you were one of the shooters i would make this two million dollars to be lowered it enough where the family was able to muster the resources and get and get Lance out. But you're right. They were fortunate to have a judge who was listening, and he did listen.
0: Um, so talk about Lieutenant Lohman, because uh, I, I, I just find uh, this stuff incredible. You have this quote in there. I knew this was a bullshit story, but I went along with it. I mean, what's going on here?
1: That was really one of the key moments right away in the cover-up. So you mentioned Lieutenant Lohman, he was not involved in the shooting that morning, but he was, like many others, operating from the Crystal Palace banquet hall about three miles away from the the scene of the shooting. And so after there was a call of a shooting, he was assigned as the lead investigator. So he gets out there, gets out there after the shooting, and he looks around, and Lohman, who had a good record as a supervisor who was well-respected, looks around, and he sees no evidence. That the family, there was no, the family did not have guns, black and white, there's no doubt about that. But at that moment, that first morning, he didn't see any guns by the, the victims. He didn't see any any indication they had been shooting. He saw no evidence that they, they were armed that morning. They started walking up and down the bridge and asking some of the shooters what happened. And the stories they told just did not make sense to him. He was a, you know, sort of a thoughtful investigator, but he made a gut decision that morning. He said, In his own mind, he said to himself, I know this is a bullshit story, but I'm going to go along with it. He chose to go along with the men and women in blue rather than the family. And he decided to stay with that. And so, as he listened to these tales, he told the officers to go and write their reports and he would look at it. And he ultimately submitted, you know, helped submit reports that were a fiction. But clearly, something was gnawing at Loman. the reports themselves were a whole chapter, and that is the investigators would sit together with the officers supposedly under review and would write the reports, describe what happened together. That obviously should not happen in a real investigation. You know, there were the fake witnesses, there were the fictions of the reports, but when the lower level investigators sent the reports to Lohman, he didn't think that they were very good. We sent them back for rewrites, so they went back and forth for rewrites um, before they finally submitted their final report. Defending themselves and alleging that the families were armed. Again, these were all lies. Loman, though, though he went along with it in a very significant way, he kept copies of these various reports that were written along the line that, all the way up until the final one. Only the final one was the one made public. And years later, when the Civil Rights Division and the Department of Justice deeply and aggressively investigated this case, Lohman became a witness and he shared with them those reports. So he clearly decided to go along with the lie in the beginning and his cooperation helped the cover-up, but later on he broke and um, testified to what really happened uh, that morning.
0: And then uh, there's this quote from Hunter. I mean, it was pretty obvious they were initiating a cover-up. They didn't separate us and ask us questions individually. Nothing was collected from the scene. I mean, this is just incredible stuff
1: yeah yeah and everyone knew it was a cover-up everyone knew what really happened and um it just you know what was interesting is that after the family filed lawsuits the local district attorney a few months later um, built the case and they initially brought charges against some of the shooters that morning in the state court two things in that front one during the first court hearing for the officers they walked the court hearing they were paraded on the streets as heroes. They were literally paraded as heroes with people holding up placards saying that they were heroes. That case fell apart, but even while that, because of um, technicalities and apparently some errors that were um, committed, the judge said there were errors committed by the local VA. But even while the local case was being brought, going back to what I noted earlier, that the Madison family and the other families didn't trust the local authorities. even while there were charges pending, They were writing letters urging the Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division, the federal authorities to investigate. They just didn't have any faith in the local system of justice. But ultimately, the state case fell apart. But later on, the DOJ Civil Rights Division, the FBI, um, I would say much more aggressively investigated. And they then brought the case that ultimately led to conviction.
0: What was the problem with uh, the local DA? Was it lack of will or was it just incompetence?
1: Well, the judge who handled that case um, contended that the local DA made some errors on the issues of immunity, enough so that he tossed the case, and he felt like um, he tossed it for the right reason. What was interesting about that case is um, the judge hearing the case had some staff members who had had some um, connections with some of the lawyers for some of the police officers, so there were some potential conflicts of interest there. The local DA didn't immediately file a request to remove the judge and some people criticized that. They did much later, but by then it was too late. So, all of those things led to what the family felt was um, really an imperative of justice and they did not ever believe justice would be carried out in New Orleans and they were proved right. Um, whoever you come down and how the DA handle the case or not, they were right. The case did not hold up in the local, uh, when we was stopped with the local authorities.
0: But the feds become the heroes here.
1: They were much more aggressive. They talked to witnesses who had not been um, interviewed before. They knocked on the doors of the shooters. They aggressively interviewed and pressed buttons on the investigators. And they were able to build up evidence. Soon enough, one, then two, then three, then four, then five of the officers were on that bridge. And then later on, the supervisors started to turn. One of the officers who agreed to cooperate was Hunter. He was the one who drove the budget rental truck that morning and fired the first warning shots out his window. He, um, tell you how crazy it was during New Orleans after Katrina, when he drove out to patrol during the day, he had his own 30 inch assault rifle with him between the seats of of the truck he was driving. Just, it was just a different, different, different time. Um, He was paraded by a hero at one point, somebody a fellow officer was congratulating him and he went and pursued a fellow officer in the, in the bathroom and said we're not effing heroes we're not heroes so he was haunted a little bit by what happened he he agreed to cooperate that's how the dominance started to fall the federal authorities fbi working with this department of justice civil rights division pushed buttons in a much more aggressive way than i think the da did and once these officers started to turn the truth came out, and the truth was what the families had been saying
0: from day one. Did you ever get to talk to some of the officers? I tried. I, I saw it in interviews through their lawyers and family
1: members, and um, none of them would, would talk. A couple of things. One is, um, during the middle of my research for the book, the, after the officers had been convicted, the judge who overseeing overseen the case throughout the convictions in order to second trial. So Everyone was wary of a second trial, which made them even more reluctant. But what I did was, I my first reporting trip to New Orleans was to go to the sentencing of the officers. Remember the first story I read was I think in August of 2011 is when the officers were convicted. It was the first, maybe the only day of relief for the family. They were then being sentenced in April of 2012. I went to New Orleans for that trip and I was in the courtroom that morning when they were sentenced. None of the officers who were convicted spoke, but many of their colleagues did. So I really got a firsthand feel for their, how their brothers and sisters felt. And again, a lot of those officers who stood up in court and, and spoke on their behalf, none of them excused the cover-up. I don't think any of them excused shooting, but a lot of them said, that could have been me, the fear. So I kept that in mind. And I also did a lot of research into all the letters and correspondence written on behalf of the officers and their family members and had some interviews with police officers. One of the lawyers who represented one of the defense officers had been a New Orleans homicide detective for many, many years. And was, even though he wasn't one of the shooters that morning, he had been involved in deadly shootings himself. And he was able to talk to me about the life and death moments of when you're dealing with life and death and you have a second to figure it out. So I really tried to understand the perspective of the officers that morning. Um, and finally, one of the officers, uh, testified during the trial and I read his transcript before in, in heard what his thoughts were that morning. So I tried to represent their views, um, during, uh, what happened that morning.
0: Do you ever get a sense that they had remorse over this?
1: Yeah. A couple of them did. One of the officers who testified against his colleagues, you know, they all got prison sentences, but the ones who testified and cooperated, you know, they were, they're, Sentences were less than they would have been. When he went to be sentenced, this officer apologized. He admitted shame for his role in this most shameful day of New Orleans Police Department. So I think there was some shame once it came out. But I got to tell you, it took years for the you know the wall of lies, the levy of lies, to be shattered. Um, the police stood to be, stuck to their story. They stuck to their lies, and it took the families, and their advocates, and ultimately the Said to to unmask the lies so there was some shame there was some remorse but i will say that it did not come easily or quickly
0: ultimately what is this a story of and and by that i i I don't mean you know the immediate story but what what's the moral here um you know is is this a a police department that just broke a legal system that didn't work i mean we know all the problems of pre uh, Katrina, New Orleans and, and their legal system that kind of came out because of Katrina. But what what does all that tell us about what happened here?
1: That's a, that's a really good question. Something I thought about a lot. You know, one of the big lessons I took from investigating the shooting, the cover-up and the impact on the families was, you know, this may sound simple, but it's really true, the importance of strong leadership at the top. The reason I say that is But I interviewed Mark Morial, the former New Orleans mayor, who is now the head of the National Urban League. When he was mayor in New Orleans, he really didn't show a lot of patience for police corruption. He hired an outsider as police chief. He actually worked with the feds to make clear that wayward officers were not going to get away with it. Well, I think he clearly supported police. He wasn't going to let them get away with, with, you know, these unlawful shootings and cover-ups. During the time of the Katrina, the mayor was Ray Nagin, who was a populist businessman, had a much different attitude. And it was very clear in researching these events that the officers involved, both the shooters and the investigators crafting the cover-up, really had no worry at all about what the mayor or anyone else above them was going to do. They just crafted their own fiction and knew that it would hold. If you were in a situation where you have really strong leadership at the top, and in Morial's case again, he hired a police superintendent—they call him Superintendent morons, who was top on the top. You know, if you think you're not going to get so easily away with it, maybe these fictions wouldn't have held so easily um, as they did back then. That was one of the lessons that I took from this. And the second one I mentioned a little bit earlier, and that is just the power and the importance of the families—the families pushing for answers and not accepting the police story.
0: And the DA here was Harry Connick Sr., correct?
1: No, he had been a previous DA. At this point, it was um, a, a different district attorney at, at that time um, when the case was brought, District Attorney George, his office.
0: Oh, okay. Because Connick is an interesting figure in his own right.
1: Right. Well, New Orleans is a fascinating place for many, many reasons. Everything about New Orleans is fascinating, including its history of DAs. And you're right, Harry Connick Sr. was. Um, was one of those district attorneys, but he wasn't at the time of the shooting.
0: Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the, the show, even though your book is a few years old now, is, you know, I picked up the book and I read it and, you know, I, I follow this stuff, but I really didn't know the story at all. Um, it, it, it's kind of weird, right? Because, you know, here we've had all these high profile Police incidents in the last decade—everything, you know—from uh, Michael Brown to most recently George Floyd—and we don't know this story. And this story is probably worse than all of those put together.
1: Yeah, and Eric Garner and Walter Scott—in so many cases—that's a really good point and something I I thought about a great deal. So I started researching this book in 2011, and you know, the book came out in 2015. So I was researching it for several years. So by 2013, the Black Lives Matter movement was really, had really taken hold nationwide. And those cases you mentioned certainly were brought to the public's attention. But what really struck me as I was researching the shots on the bridge and at the dams of the bridge was this case was never or barely ever mentioned among those cases. And I just could not understand it because I agree with you. When you look at both so the bloodshed on the bridge that morning, the, the toll of human suffering, But then the extent of the cover up, those two issues combined, I think make this one of the most, if not the most troubling police shooting in case of police abuse in in modern American times, at least going back several years. I, I definitely feel it does when you put those two elements together, the tragedy and the cover up, but it was just never mentioned in those cases. So ultimately, I thought when the book came out, it was important that the book came out to add this case to the lexicon, add this case to those cases that's gathering the nation's attention. But I agree with you. I thought that it really should have had more attention even before then.
0: Who do you consider the heroes of this story?
1: I would say the first wave of heroes, would I would have to say, would be the families. The families who knew that what the police t- were was saying wasn't true. I think back to James J. J.J. said the 17-year-old who was friends with the Bartholomew family and was killed that morning. You know his mom. He was uh, her last child. She, you know, of course, loved him every day of his life. She lost him, and so, and it took her many, many months, many months to find out what happened to JJ. I, I can't even imagine that feeling. She pushed for the truth. Um, the Bartholomew family. The mom lost her arm. Her daughter was nearly killed. Her nephew was literally within a breath of being killed when the paramedics said, leave him alone, he's gone. And, and JJ said, don't give up on me. I don't know he said those words. for right, Jose said that. So that family pushed, and of course the Madison family who lost their beloved um, son, their beloved brother, Ronald, they all pushed. I think they're really the heroes. And I thought, in trying to tell the story, I just wanted to honor them by telling the story truthfully. I think you also have to give credit to the Civil Rights Division. I know the judge, the federal judge, in the federal case was very critical of the fbi and critical of the u.s attorney's office partially for issues that had nothing to do with this case with this totally unrelated online scandal that had nothing to do with this case but if you step back the doj civil rights division and the fbi very clearly aggressively investigated this case they listened to the families and they heard the truth and they and they got the truth brought out so i think that they do deserve credit for bringing the truth to light. Had they not investigated this case so aggressively, you know, the truth, I don't think, would not have come out in the court. And you would not have, would not have had those guilty pleas that you ultimately had.
0: And then, you know, kind of the converse, I mean, who's, who's really at fault here if you had to pick one person?
1: You know, I would say writ large, the leadership of New Orleans, the city, and the police department. The culture was such that back at this time in 2005 that the officers felt they could literally get away with it. And you know, a lot of times you say it was the system's fault, that can sound too generic, but it's, it's the truth in this case. There was a, a DOJ, a separate DOJ division did an investigation of police practices in New Orleans um, over many years and found that police who fired their weapons at unarmed suspects were never prosecuted in New Orleans Police Department. There was really a culture that allowed this to happen, and I would really blame NOPD and the city leaders for the culture allowing this to happen, for the officers and their supervisors thinking that they could get away with killing those two those two family members, naming for others, and then blaming victims for the shooting. That's where I would put the blame, honestly.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Well, it was my pleasure to uh, talk about. These issues, you're right. They're very tragic, but I think they're important, and I appreciate you bringing them out.
0: This has been Everyday Injustice. That was Ronnie Green, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who wrote the book Shots on the Bridge about uh, a a shooting uh, in the wake of Katrina, a very tragic shooting. Highly recommend the book. A very fascinating read. Join us again next time, and we'll have more tales from the injustice system.